0: Uh, I can tell you from my personal perspective what people from our like PhD positions can do uh, is that be open uh, to requests from students who are aspiring graduate students. Um, Students find it easy to ask help uh, from people whom they think are similar to them. I don't know how sure it is because most of the requests I get on Twitter, on LinkedIn are students from India who are wanting to do a PhD in US, in Europe, and I think it is easier for them to approach me or another fellow Indian student rather than directly an American student or a student from Europe. It feels comfortable to share with someone whom you know will understand where you're coming
1: from. Hi there, and welcome to the second episode of the fresh new third season of the podcast What Are You Going To Do With That? by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. In this podcast, I chat with early career researchers about the story behind their academic journeys. So if you want to learn from their struggles and successes, you are in the right place. Today's guest is Harini Sridharan, who went from a BSc in Chemical Engineering in India an MSc in polymer engineering in Ohio and is now doing a PhD in chemical and biomolecular engineering in Georgia. Harini will tell us what it's like to switch fields of research, but also countries. And first, I would like to invite you to have a look at our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where you will find more information about our upcoming guests, and we'd love to hear from you there as well. We also have a blog, on our website and a YouTube channel, with many more tips and tricks for early career researchers, so go and check it out! Now let's get back to Harini Sridharan, I do hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but we'll get to that in a minute, Uh, as this episode is all about her story. Harini has a Bachelor of Technology in Chemical Engineering from SRM University in India, and then worked as a scientist at Hasetri and was responsible for elastomer research and the development of tires. Only a few years later, Harini decided to go back to uni and started an MSc in polymer engineering at the University of Akron in Ohio. She then continued with a PhD in chemical and biomolecular engineering at Georgia Institute of Technology. In addition to having been a student assistant, done poster presentations that were awarded, and publishing academic articles, Harini has held various roles in diversity, equity and inclusion. She especially focuses on the representation of BIPOC, which is Black, Indigenous and other people of colour, so BIPOC women in STEM. You can all follow Harini on Twitter, which already has 1500 followers, with the handle Sridhar 3 So welcome Harini, and thanks for joining our show today, how are you doing?
0: Hi, thank you for calling me to this podcast. I'm doing great.
1: That was an amazing introduction. Thank you. It sounds good to hear everything together, right? In your whole life, in just a few sentences. Yeah. But it is impressive. So well done. Thank you. I've got a cute little bottle of my regular amaretto with me. What are you having today?
0: I'm having something called filter coffee. Uh, It is a specific type of... uh, coffee that's made in the southern part of India. Okay. Uh, it's a very chemical engineering process. Uh, you have a filter, you put coffee powder on top, you put boiling hot water and then it filters through the extract and then you add that extract to milk uh, and then you have it. And the coffee powder that I used is an Ethiopian blend, Okay. Uh, which was gifted to me uh, by my friend uh, Albrey uh, from my master's. So this is a very good different blend of putting different things together and still seeing how well it tastes. And it tastes good.
1: Oh, that sounds really good. Cheers. Thank you. Is it a strong one too? Uh,
0: I like my coffee a little strong. Uh, There is a good joke that I read somewhere that I drink enough caffeine that uh, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to keep moving even six hours after my death. So that is the (laughs) level of caffeine that I hit myself with.
1: Nice. (laughs) All right. So while we sip that drink, I have a few short questions for you. And the first one is a very usual one, which is what happens in your regular mornings?
0: So my mornings are a very good reflection of what sort of mental state I am in. So if I am in my regular productive state, then I usually get up at around six o'clock. I go for a walk slash run. I attempt to run, uh, but I walk in the morning (laughs) for like an hour come back uh, and uh, have a good breakfast. I like to take my time during breakfast because that's the one meal that I know that I'm not going to be having in front of, uh, you know, a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet with data. (laughs) And uh, I leave for lab at around nine o'clock and I'm usually there at that time.
1: Okay, that sounds like a very active morning, but also relax in a way to take it easy for breakfast.
0: Yeah, it's a very important meal. So can't uh, tamper around with that.
1: Sounds like a very healthy morning.
0: No, I just made it sound healthy, but the breakfast I have is a very different question, isn't it? But I try to keep it as healthy as possible.
1: (laughs) What are you having for breakfast then?
0: Uh, So I usually uh, oscillate between uh, uh, regular bread and like peanut butter jelly sandwich, uh, high on jelly, less on peanut butter, or I go for... uh, we have something called paratha in India, which is a bread that is stuffed with any filling that you like. So I usually like potato filled parathas and okay. uh, they are high on butter and, you know, high on calories. But they get me through the day. So I'm glad about that.
1: I remember that from my trip in India and I liked it a lot. So, yeah, nice. it has
0: a lot of fans.
1: <laughs> and then talking about food, what is your favorite dessert?
0: Oh, God. Dessert. I can eat dessert for the entire meal. Uh, I really (laughs) like tiramisu. It's a, I, I, it's just one of my favorites. Uh, Really? And, you know what's in there? Uh, yes, yes, yes. And tiramisu, I really like it because I can make a good tiramisu. Okay. So that's one of the reasons why I really like tiramisu also. And when it comes to my more uh, traditional, you know, uh, desserts, I like we make something called kheer, which is uh, milk and sugar, but it also has a lot of other, you can add whatever you want with it. Like you can add a vermicelli with it, or you can add rice with it. It's just sweet milk, but it's very traditional. And we usually have it around festivals. So when I feel homesick, I tend to make myself feel worse by having that. <laughs> so
1: Oh, no. I'm sure it's not only worse, just for a little bit. And then it a bit gets better.
0: Bittersweet. Right? It's a bittersweet experience.
1: <laughs> Good. All right. Another short question I have is, what is currently on your cell phone wallpaper?
0: My cell phone wallpaper is a picture of my cat, uh, Lola. She is in uh, India right now with my parents. I... Um, Rescued her off the streets of uh, Mysore, the town where I was working. And she was with me for three months and then I had to move to U.S. So I dropped her off at my parents' place. And, uh, you know, one look at her uh, evil face and everything is all right in my life.
1: That's really nice. I like that. All right. Yeah, so you already mentioned that you're originally from India, which, which is where you did your BSc in chemical engineering. And you also had a job there. As a scientist right so when did you start thinking about continuing or going back to school for an MSC uh,
0: so I when I was st- when I started my uh, employment at Hasetri, uh, I was very thrilled to get a job in a core company I- instead of a company uh, that was not aligned with my uh, core interests of chemical engineering so I was very happy that I got a job and uh, I loved my position there. Uh, I was very glad to get a steady paycheck because as a bachelor student, you're just looking for a steady source of income to get Mm -hmm. you through the month. Uh, But like about a year and a half into my employment, um, I got introduced to the concept of journal papers and academic pursuits of research. Uh, I was in charge of an equipment called tear and fatigue analyzer. And the best part about that role was that I had complete freedom to investigate whatever I wanted. So that was one of the best parts about the organization that I was a part of. Yeah, it sounds uh, almost uh, unicornish, right? Because you don't (laughs) get that sort of freedom when you're a fresher in the industry. And then uh, my colleague there, uh, who did his PhD from Germany, uh, he introduced me to the concept of, you know, this is what we do in a lab. And this is what a professor's job is. And this is what entails academia. Uh, so I uh, became interested. And by the end of my second year, I started thinking, OK, I think I should go back. But it was never a clear sort of an ambition. I just started applying. OK. Like most things in my life, I think this just was supposed to happen and it sort of happened. And uh, I was very interested in being a part of the um, master scenario in Germany because they have, uh, you know, the tuition fee is not there in germany as far as i knew but uh, fate had it that i ended up coming to us
1: okay that's interesting because i am currently in germany because i got a scholarship to do my research here for a year
0: congratulations
1: thank you yeah which is very exciting but that means that you were also almost close to here now and then you ended up in the us anyway so what how did that happen and yeah you also changed fields right
0: Yeah. So what happened was when you're a part of tire industry, the sort of papers you come across, uh, the really famous ones and the really historically also like, you know, important ones uh, are all from the University of Akron because Akron was the place where uh, it's the tire town. It's where tires originated. All the great people in the tire industry are a part of or were a part of University of Akron in some way or the other. Uh, and I just ended up seeing that name so many times. I thought, okay, let me just apply. And I applied um, a month after the deadline of the application. Oh. Uh, but that's why I said things just happen, you know, sometimes they're meant to happen. So I ended up being a part of the, the an amazing department, uh, Polymer Engineering uh, in University of Akron.
1: That sounds good. Yeah, so it was supposed to be that university and not necessarily something in Germany where they do have the car industry, but I'm not so sure about tires necessarily.
0: But I ended up doing no research in tires in my master's. So
1: Yeah, so what did you do in your master's? Uh,
0: In my master's, I was uh, part of a new group, uh, uh, a relatively new group. Uh, We uh, were working on um, dynamics of complex systems, uh, or we used to call our lab the DOCS lab dynamic of complex uh, systems. And my work was uh, understanding the cross effects between uh, heat transfer and uh, fluid flow. So if fluid were to flow uh, in a rheometer, we call it shear flow. And if we were to uh, send a temperature gradient, uh, 90 degrees to the fluid flow, uh, what happens basically? So the thing that drew me to the project was because it was so fundamental Uh, It had no jargon, right? It was just very understanding the very basics of the forces of uh, transport phenomena. Uh, And it also included me building uh, an accessory from scratch for a rheometer. So the aspect of designing something, building something, and then like validating it sort of made me feel like uh, it would be my own, like my kid. So I just ended up working with uh, a group that was very new.
1: Okay, so... Can I ask how that worked exactly when you applied for it? Because you came from India, you were working as a scientist on tires, and now all of a sudden you were in this new group in the US. How did that come? Like, how was the application? What did you tell them that made yeah. them believe that you were the best candidate?
0: I, uh, I, I, so I think uh, my admission into University of Akron. The credit goes to the chair of the department. His name is Dr. Sadhan Jana is also from India. And uh, he is closely related to the tire industry. So I think when he read my application, uh, he might have seen a want to do something new to grow out of the current place that I was in. So I also ended up asking him, why did you take me in? uh, Mm Because he said that I was able to see someone who would be able to do something new through your application. And I took a chance on you. And uh, I hope that it pays off. And I hope that it did. I hope that I did make him proud.
1: Well, you did finish your MA. Yeah. (laughs) So that was uh, probably a good thing. But after the MA and this whole new process that you were in and learning a whole new subject, you did something completely else again for the PhD. So I was wondering when I was looking at your resume, how does that work? Like, How do you keep shooting from one end to another?
0: That's true. Uh, Just a small correction. It's MSc. It's not MA. Yeah, I know you're used to that because (laughs) that's the circle that uh, you are in. Uh, So for my PhD, uh, at least my master's was, I think, a complete gamble because I just was in a job, in a steady, uh, my life was going very steady. And I thought, let me just disturb everything, introduce chaos. And I did my master's. (laughs) Uh, My PhD was uh, pretty planned because I wanted to do a PhD. I knew that. And by the first year of my master's, I started writing my statement of purpose. So I wrote my SOP for a year. That's how uh, planned I was to do my PhD. I applied to 10 universities across US and yeah. uh, Georgia Tech was one of them that uh, took me in. And it's, a, it's an amazing department, an amazing university to be a part of. Uh, uh, and I came here and I... My department here has a very interesting way of uh, matching students with their advisors, which I think is pretty common for chemical engineering across the country. At least that's what my current advisor tells me. uh, Wherein uh, you meet professors uh, for the first one or one and a half months of your program after you come in. Um, And you're supposed to meet a minimum of eight professors in my department. That's a lot. So even the professors can't say no to meeting you. So that particular time is meant for professors to free up their schedule to meet students and students to meet uh, as many professors as they can in the department. And then I started meeting different professors. And when I met my current advisor, and he was the first person I met, I just immediately became fascinated by the sort of human being he was. He's just a very real, complete, rounded advisor. He's just very himself to his students. And the weird thing was I met him online first, right? Because I started my PhD in 2020, right in the thick of the pandemic. So I never got an in-person read on any of the professors that I was meeting. So I chose the person instead of the project. Okay. And uh, because I realized that PhD is a long time, five years, and the sort of mentor uh, slash advisor you have can end up affecting the sort of professor you might become Mm -hmm. later on, right? Because you simply draw from your mentors, And the project was very, very different. The last time I took bio was in 2009. I have no idea. And I still, I'm very open with my group members that I have no idea what most of you are talking about, but I am learning. And uh, I think it paid off, hopefully. It's too early to say. I'm just in my second year, but Mm -hmm. doing something new is probably the only thing that keeps things fresh in life. So... I am a little bit of an adrenaline junkie that way.
1: All right, fair enough. Before I'm going to ask you uh, to talk a little bit more about your specific research right now in the second year of your PhD, I wanted to go back to what you said earlier. You said that during your MA, you already sent out 10 applications within the US for the PhD, right? Was it only in the US or also outside? I only applied in US because I figured I had gotten used to the culture
0: of US by then I knew the application process, I knew what documents I had to, you know, uh, furnish in front of them as a part of my application portfolio. And uh, I was already doing research classes, I was working to uh, on-campus jobs because my master's was not funded. So I wanted to keep things as less chaotic as possible. Uh, That's totally off character, but still I wanted to keep (laughs) things as predictable as possible. So I ended up applying only within U.S
1: there's already enough changes and you already made that huge change from India to the US for the MA. Um, what was that like for you? How did you experience that?
0: Oh God, it was,
1: uh, the thing is that I would not like to
0: portray myself as someone who goes through something through such a big change because so many students come from India to US, right? But the one thing I wish everybody keeps in mind is that everybody's experience is unique. So even though, uh, you know that the volume of people coming through are very high. Uh, your experience is validated. Uh, I was, uh, I think the first day I, I came to US without knowing anybody. So I did not have a very similar experience to students who already have their seniors in the college that they come to and they know that this person they can go to for help. I had nobody. I just came in as a lone person. Um, and I think the first couple of days or three days was just uh, me crying and not having food because the food that was kept in front of me was nothing that I was aware of. I'm like, what is, why is, why is all the food cold? i no food is hot. So I was very, <laughs> very, uh, very disturbed. But then I met some people through my department um, who then became my roommates uh, in Akron, Ohio. And uh, that showed me the importance of having a good support system. Take your time uh, making your support system, but make sure that you have people uh, whom you would go back to uh, and not be conscious of showing you at your worst. Like, you need not be strong in front of them. They will be there for you no matter what. So those people, plus a lot of uh, counseling sessions from uh, the university, uh, helped me uh, get acclimated to the place.
1: Okay, so I think it's definitely fair enough to say that you already went through big change Uh, And that you were now comfortable in your new place uh, in the US and that then any 10 other places in the US would have worked for you too.
0: Uh, To an extent, yes, I think. Because even I could have, uh, I did end up getting an offer from University of Akron also, but uh, I get bored very soon. So I had already spent two years there. So then I wanted to try something new.
1: Okay. And that you very much did, including biology. Yes. (laughs) At uh, uh, Georgia Tech. So now I guess I came to the point where I'm going to ask you to explain your research to someone like me who's not from STEM at all. Mm.
0: So I think the interesting part of me explaining my research to you would be the same way my advisor explained the research to me to someone who had no idea what was going on. (laughs) Uh, So we are uh, slightly on the same boat here and that makes things uh, more interesting. So um, I work in uh, a subset of uh, biology called systems biology. Uh, systems biology is um, different from the traditional version of biology, which, is, which happens to be a reductionist approach. At least these are the words I think my advisor exactly used. Uh, traditionally, what people in biology do is uh, they want to see the effect of changing one thing on something else. So they tend to remove everything else that is there in the system. So they only change this particular thing and see how the other or the resultant variable is changing. But systems biology uh, takes the entire system as a whole and studies it together as a single unit. So the advantage of systems biology is uh, that it's called a top-down approach, meaning you look at the entire system, you study how the e- everything is changing, and then you start looking into what you want to look at. Because... Uh, Nothing is isolated in nature, right? Because there are so many things happening in the background which can end up affecting the variable of interest. That seems about right. So in right, systems yeah. biology, yeah, it, it, it gives you that advantage. Uh, the slight difficulty I have felt till now in systems biology is the volume of data that is thrown at you because you are measuring everything that's possible to measure in a system. And uh, you have so much data to go through. So th- there comes in experience. Uh, Because the more uh, acclimated you are to the sort of analysis you are doing, uh, the more you will be able to see patterns or something out of pattern. And uh, I do something called metabolomics within systems biology, uh, where we study the metabolism or let me put it this way, the change in uh, the metabolic profile of a particular organism. So let me say that I, uh, I study yeast, that is my model organism. I uh, want to see how the metabolism within yeast is changing uh, from uh, 0 hours to 4 hours to 8 hours of its growth. So what I'll do is I'll uh, start my growth and I'll take a a time point at 4 hours. I'll take my sample, I will freeze it. So that becomes a snapshot of the metabolic profile. Nothing else is moving because once I plunge something in minus 80 degrees Celsius, nothing wants to live at that particular point of time. So everything is frozen. And then I take another at eight hours. And then I break open the cells and I study what in all metabolites were there inside it. So a particular organism has so many metabolites. uh, So out of which sometimes I end up getting 150 uh, metabolites that are there in four hour time point and eight hour time point. Now I have to see what interesting has happened between that four hours and eight hours. This is just a very rudimentary approach of what I have learned in the 10 months that I have. But uh, this is sort of as sort of a big picture of what I explained. right?
1: That didn't seem too complicated to me, so that was a good one. Thanks for that um and it also sounds like it's interesting what you say about the system biology that you look at the the whole right the holistic approach instead of um taking something out of nature, putting it in a lab, and have it in a controlled area, and then see what happens to it if only one thing changes. Um, But of course, in real life, that's not really how it works, because it's not a control environment, like you mentioned. But then the amount of data um, is much larger. So it's much harder to figure out as a researcher where the change came from exactly, what started the change, that you don't have like a chicken and an egg question. Um, And it's also something about scope. Right, which is what I'm struggling with at the moment in my yeah. own research um, because I'm studying a lot of different time frames and a lot of different newspapers, which is relevant for my work. Mm-hmm. And it's just grown out of proportion. So now I need to narrow it down again and cut some stuff out, which I have a hard time with also doing because I don't want to cut anything out because True. everything is interesting. True. Are you experiencing the same in STEM? I don't think I have a. Uh gained
0: enough experience to know what is interesting and not interesting. So that's the thing I'm struggling with right now, which was something that I was told by my advisor that uh, when you have such a lot of data, it takes time to build a story and you need experience to do it. So and also uh, a word of apology to my advisor, if he's ever if he's listening to this, that if I said something wrong, I'm sorry,
1: (laughs) I tried to do my best. (laughs) I'm sure he appreciates it, yeah. But it sounds about right. And uh, that's the thing, right? We are doing a PhD, and we might be more advanced than people in their BAs or MAs, but we're still students. We're still learning how to do it. So Mm -hmm. um, it's fair to take your time and get used to the field and know how to deal with that. Um, I'm sure I'm taking my time.
0: (laughs) That's the best way to do it.
1: All right. Um, So that was all about your research. But something else that really stood out for me on your resume um, was something about your roles in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I was wondering how you got into those roles and what they entail exactly. What do you do in them?
0: Okay, so uh, first, uh, kudos to somebody on Twitter, actually, who had the idea of putting a separate header for, uh, you know, roles in DEI. If you have a if that is one of your interests it's better to highlight it on your resume that's what i read on that tweet and uh, i thought it was a good idea to frame my resume also in a similar way um mm-hmm. i had unconsciously no subconsciously always been uh, interested towards dei because being a, a woman in engineering in traditional roles of engineering, which is like chemical engineering, mechanical engineering, uh, those are like the very core parts of engineering. They tend to be male dominated. So it has always uh, been something that has been in my scope somehow. And the more I started learning that there are formal names and roles that people have who are geared towards these interests the more accepted I felt that, okay, my interests are also a part of STEM.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, when I was a part of Hasetri, uh, tire industry tends to be also male-dominated. And I was uh, one of three women recruited in a batch of 40 men during my wow. year. So it was, the, the imbalance is evident. So when I started working in the company, the company was very supportive, uh, actually. So I never really felt that I was being discriminated against. But the very fact that there were less people who looked like me around me was a very good jolt for me to, to realize that, okay, this is not a normal scenario. We need to sort of, you know, balance it out. And the company was amazing in hearing our complaints and hearing our uh, uh suggestions for how to make it more and by the time i did resign from the company 3 years later i think we had somewhere around 10 women on my floor of employment okay that's a good development right from like 3 or 4 i'm i'm i'm, I'm forgetting the exact numbers but it was a definite proper increase in uh female representation which was very very you know heartwarming to see and once i came to america i started noticing that there are again as i said formal names and roles for these interests and i became a part of um, a small workshop called women in engineering where high school girls uh, came to our university and i had to mentor them for a week towards a small research project and then they had to present a poster in uh, front of everybody or the pride I felt when you know they were speaking was just immeasurable that was just everything in the whole world that sounds great Uh, then I was a part of um, this was my then advisor's interests Uh, uh, it was something called neurodiversity and that was the first time I was hearing that word and once I started learning about what it means at least informally, not a formal definition, I was very interested to be a part of it. So he invited me to be a part of his uh, effort called uh, the Pulse Workshop, where you are uh, training uh, neurodivergent people, or I think specifically people on the autism spectrum, to uh, you're training them to be a part of a laboratory. Okay. So I was working with a student who was on the autism spectrum, and I helped him a little bit. Uh, get acclimated to a laboratory environment. And that was an entirely new experience. And now I am a part of a diversity and I'm a diversity and inclusion fellow wherein my project is uh, representation of BIPOC women in STEM, as you mentioned in your introduction. My current department is very, very particular about uh, conversations around diversity. Uh, my advisor himself is uh, he holds separate meetings on um, how to write reference letters and what are the unconscious biases that may come in. We have conversations around uh, uh, racial inequity. We have conversations around gender inequity. It is, um, it's such a comfortable place to have these conversations and it's the best place to have them because if there are people who end up becoming professors from his group, then we are aware of these uh, biases that can exist unconsciously within us
1: i'm very glad to hear that it's not only you working in these positions from within academia and by yourself trying to make a change but that you're actually in an environment that's really supportive of that um and that's also something i also wanted to ask you like what do you think should change in academia to make it more open for inclusion
0: mm. It's a very, very difficult question, isn't it? Very so general many, too. <laughs> and so many different people are pondering around it. Uh, I can tell you from my personal perspective what people from our like PhD positions can do uh, is that be open uh, to requests from students who are aspiring graduate students. Um, students find it easy to ask help uh, from people whom they think are similar to them. Okay. I don't know how sure it is because most of the requests I get on Twitter, on LinkedIn are students from India who are wanting to do a PhD in US, in Europe. And I think it is easier for them to approach me or another fellow Indian student rather than directly an American student or a student from Europe. It feels comfortable to share with someone whom you know will understand where you're coming from. So be open to those requests. I know that it can get... When you have a full schedule, it can get slightly overwhelming when you have students like, you know, ask you so many questions. So draw boundaries, but always be open to requests from them to maybe review their SOP. It's going to take you two minutes because you've written an SOP, you know. So you can tell them that, okay, try to change it this way, this way. Uh, And then you can have a template uh, message typed out that says, okay, what are your inquiries? Please type them out so that I can answer your questions one by one. Mm-hmm. Please be helpful to students because you were in that same position maybe a couple of years ago or five years ago. Please don't forget where you came from. That's very important. Uh, and secondly, if this is a dream of mine, one day I hope I will be able to do it is try to financially have some funds set aside so that you can maybe pay for one student's application fee, you know. I am not financially strong enough to do that right now. But if professors are hearing this, if they could do this for even one student in a year, that can change lives. This may be too much to ask for, but still, you know, one can be hopeful.
1: Sounds really good. But yeah, we'll have to see how many of us can afford it for others to also join the the team. Yeah,
0: but my dream is to do that one day, you know, at least set aside for one application. That's it.
1: All right. So you said that a lot of people are reaching out to you. Uh, especially also from India, maybe because they feel that you went through the same thing. So they can ask you the questions that you used to have back then. Mm -hmm. Um, And how do they reach you? So they usually DM
0: me uh, through Twitter or through LinkedIn. Uh, People uh, uh, direct message me. And I try to be as unbiased as possible when I'm looking at these messages, uh, because I think we are also used to creeps uh messaging us on different social media platforms so i but i try to be as unbiased as possible and i have a, a they ask questions like okay i'm i'm planning to apply sometimes nowadays i get particular requests like i'm planning to apply to georgia tech so can you please help me out whom should i reach out to uh, i'm emailing professors they are not replying to me so i have to i usually let them know that the culture is very different in america and europe in europe professors i think tend to reply back But in America, uh, professors don't do it because you have to go through the admissions process first before they actually respond to you. Um, Because the volume of requests they get are insane otherwise. And I let them know that if professors don't reply, it's not a big deal. Go through the admissions process first if it's US and then we can see where it happens. Then I let them know that if there are any immigration questions uh, that I can help them with when it came to like my own experiences, I can let them know that I did this. So maybe you can inquire with the embassy about what to do and what not to do, because I'm not allowed to say anything that I'm not too sure of, right? So I can only let them know what happens, because immigration changes so many times, and that, those are very complex questions. And since I was a receptionist slash student assistant at the international office in University of Akron, I am sort of used to the sort of questions the students used to come up with there. Uh, DM is a good way to uh, reach uh, senior grad students.
1: So you mentioned that you're uh, being approached on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And I know that on Twitter you have have quite a big following. You have 1,500 people following you now. Uh, And your handle is, if anyone else wants to check it out, Harini Sridhar3, number three, that is. Um, And in your uh, pinned tweet, you say that you tweet about mental health, about experience of an international student in the USA, which is what you were just talking about. And you also post memes and retweets of kick-ass stuff from your feed. So how did you get uh, to Twitter for that? Because like I said, I thought, like you mentioned earlier, I thought LinkedIn was more of the professional thing where people can ask you questions about applications and these kinds of things. So why and how Twitter?
0: So I started Twitter uh, in 2017 and then it was predominantly uh, just regular Twitter, right? Like politics and stuff like that. And then soon it turned so toxic. And I uh, stepped back from Twitter for like a couple of years. Then I came back and I started afresh with academic Twitter because I heard a couple of my batchmates talking about how academic Twitter is a positive space compared to any other forms of Twitter. And uh, I think uh, Ido, is that the Mm -hmm. way I pronounce his name? Because I always get confused between Ido or Ido. Uh, His handle, PhD Genie, was one of the first uh, profiles that I interacted with. And... uh, It soon became such a positive space to ask questions, learn small, small things like, as I said, the resume, uh, you know, structure, uh, uh, to learn about how to draw figures in your papers, because I didn't know what softwares to use. There was always a section of people arguing about whether to use Microsoft Word or LaTeX. uh, So (laughs) there's always that thread somewhere going on. It's, a, it's such a positive space to ask questions. For instance, I think recently I had tweeted about um, how I think mental illness and mental health are different things, but I do not know enough about it. So if anybody can help me out with it. And soon I had like a couple of handles. Uh, people who are actually working in that field. Uh, send me papers that, you know, this is uh, the actual difference. This is what it means. Where else can I get such a personal interaction with the experts in their own fields. I think academic Twitter is one of the best places to be.
1: So it's really this positive space on academic Twitter, uh, including our um, producer and editor Ido, (laughs) who is running one of those uh, accounts, trying to advise as much as he can too. That's really nice. Uh, And we are also on Twitter and we're also following each other, I believe, uh, at least from the podcast uh, platform. Personally, I'm also on Twitter, but a bit less. But I do recognize what you're saying about the positivity that's coming from there. Uh, People tweet about when they finally have a publication out and then everyone is very happy for them. But people also tweet when they got a rejection again. And then people are also very positive towards them and trying to take them out of their small uh, dip there. So that's really nice. I enjoy it a lot as well. Okay, so um, I've asked you a lot of questions already. But it wouldn't be our show if I wouldn't ask you the big one, which is what are you going to do with that? What do you plan in the near future? Of course, you're in your second year. You said you have to take your time to get used to everything and to get, become the expert in your field, as your supervisor also said. Um, but where are you heading? So right now,
0: my plans are uh, having a, an and interesting PhD. So our group, I have noticed, uh, people take up projects of their own interest within the group, and our advisor is very supportive of that. There's a lot of collaboration going on within the group. So I want to get to the space where deadlines don't inspire me, like the the data inspires me. Right now, I am in a little bit of a deadline-induced panic because everything is so new. Uh, but I'm my hope and desire is to get to a place Probably, I don't want to put a timeline on it, right? Because you can't put a timeline on inspiration. But PhD has a timeline. So I should keep that in mind. Um, So hopefully by the end of this PhD, I become a well-rounded researcher, like many of the people in my group are. Uh, And 60-40, so 60% I want to, my interests are towards academia because I love being around students in any capacity, or training and research for incoming students. But, you know, academia is very demanding. And it's, uh, on my low days, I start thinking, I start looking at the salaries that the industry gives. And I'm like, hmm, that seems like a good idea right now.
1: Interesting, <laughs> so, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, because uh, I am, as I said, I uh, my master's education was not funded. So I have like an education loan of some, like, you know, $40,000 on my head. So I am paying that off with my current PhD stipend. So money to me also looks really Uh, good right now. Uh, But I think by the end of my PhD, I should have or would have decided about it. So if it's academia, then get a good postdoc with a professor who has complementary interests to me. And then I can start applying to various universities to be a prof. That seems like such a... Far out future.
1: Yeah, there's a few more steps in between. So you have time also to think about it and and make a plan on how to make that happen, right? True. And if it's industry, you know, get a
0: good, fulfilling job. And uh, foster a lot of animals while I'm at it. (laughs)
1: Like your little cat, Lola?
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) All right. And do you have any idea about um, where that could be? Or are you open to another big change in your life if that's in the cards?
0: Uh, so if if you're asking about geographic change, then you you know that I am immune to geographic changes now. You can put me on the North <laughs> Pole and I'll probably still end up doing what I'm doing. Um, as far as changing fields are concerned, I would now be a little, slightly more conservative about changing fields because PhD is such a long time and I would have invested a good amount of time learning and becoming a quote-unquote expert at uh, mm-hmm. what I do. So my postdoc, would, I would want to be in... Not the same field, but slightly complementary field so that my, I get trained in slightly different skill sets and then I can put them together to make a more, you know, well-rounded faculty member. And even as a prof, you learn so much, right? Our group, uh, so much of our group does something called uh, cell-free biosensor research. And if I'm not wrong, uh, my advisor was, uh, his PhD was not in it. But he ended up, because of his students' interest, he ended up co-opting, you know, uh, an entirely different field of uh, research into his group. And now majority of his group works on that.
1: Okay, sounds good. So there are still a lot of options open and out there uh, to explore. But first, focusing on becoming the expert in where you are right now. That sounds like a plan. (laughs) All right, then I'd like to wrap up with another few short questions. They're mm-hmm. not actually short questions, but I do want you to answer shortly. So let's mm-hmm. see if we can manage. Mm-hmm. The first one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? Could have also been your former field. Mm. I I think that uh, when I was a part of
0: Hasetri, I began something called learning sessions through the guidance of the director there. Wherein I used to arrange a schedule for the month. Different departments used to come and present whatever they are doing. So I think my biggest contribution uh, to that company would have been fostering a culture of sharing ideas.
1: Okay, that sounds like a very important contribution.
0: I I had uh, the guidance of the people who were uh, in the higher management, but still.
1: Right, okay. And then who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? There's a professor in my department. Her name is Dr.
0: Martha Grover. And she embodies, uh, she's in a lot of leadership positions. But she still has time for students who are coming and letting her know that, you know, something is uh, not right with them. They're facing issues here, there. So I'm pretty in awe of a person who is in such a leadership position, and still so available to students. Because we have, been, we have been told that as women, you have to be so hard ass to be a leader, right? Mm. And she uh, defies that expectation. She is so sweet. And she is so good natured that it's
1: almost like, how? So I
0: want to be someone like that.
1: <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. But I have a feeling you're already a little bit like that. Because you're taking on a bit of a leadership role, right? Um, not that you're saying I'm the leader, follow me. But you are helping other people out there. Um, who are in a way following you because you seem to have uh, the knowledge or at least the experience that they also want to pursue.
0: That is a very big compliment. Thank you.
1: <laughs> You're welcome. You deserve it. <laughs> then we've come to my last question, and that is an easier one. It's how do you relax after a hard day of work?
0: So my roommate, uh, who's also a PhD student in aerospace engineering in Georgia Tech, uh, she and I are very, very close. And uh, We usually like to spend, so Friday evenings are a thing in our house. Okay. So we decide a dish much beforehand buy the ingredients. I usually bake something or we make something that's slightly a little more fancy than the rest of the week. And uh, just chill and watch Netflix. Like just, that's it. No research, just relaxing. We try very hard to keep uh, research out of this house, but it doesn't happen. But we try on Friday nights (laughs) at least
1: all right that sounds very relaxing sounds good all right so thank you harini for chatting with me today i really did enjoy it Uh, and i'd also like to thank our listeners for listening again don't forget to connect with us on social media and also on youtube and our website and also connect with harini on twitter yeah we can't wait to hear from you
0: thank you so much for having me this was a very unique and interesting experience
1: i'm glad to hear that So, you told me earlier that you started the PhD right at the beginning of the pandemic? Yes. That was awful timing, wasn't it?
0: Oh god, the first semester is so heavy in our department and we had to do everything online. So I had, like, they tried to be as uh, helpful as possible because as a department they were very, very aware of the shortcomings of starting a PhD in a pandemic, but there's only so much that anybody can do, right? Human Mm -hmm. interaction is so important and uh, our batch still formed study groups and you know we tried to keep safe and meet in person but still wear masks and everything but this is a this is a story I can tell my kids too later on that you know I start my PhD in a pandemic
1: <laughs> right yeah there's not that many thankfully that can say that um, I hope that everything will change for the better soon too I also wanted to ask did you manage to move Before the pandemic hits? Or did you get stuck along the way? Because I
0: was within US, it was not a problem. Uh, So I just had to drive down from my place. It's 10 hours by drive. So I just had to drive down here and start. Uh, But people who were stuck outside the country, like other students who got PhD admission in my batch, but were still in India, they could only come in January.
1: Wow. That took a while.
0: I was lucky that I was within the country and I had no plans of leaving it to meet my family or anything like that. So I was just like, okay, let's just do it.
1: Are you now planning on seeing your family sometime? Yes,
0: actually, I am leaving uh, next week uh, to India. After two years, I am meeting my
1: parents. That's exciting. Yeah. Wow, two years. Long time. Do you have any plans of doing something fun? I'm just going to go and eat. I'm
0: just <laughs> yeah. to eat. I'm not going to leave the house because I'm still worried about COVID. Uh, But I'm just going to eat so much and my mom has already made a list of all the dishes that she wants to make for me (laughs)